I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. <laughs> Keith is dressed up for the occasion. Uh, well, it may well be the summer break in the 2021 MotoGP season, but that is not stopping us from bringing you the best MotoGP podcast around. And yes, we are biased. Keith and Pete alongside, as per usual. And on today's show, we're going to be bringing you up to speed with all the latest news, including an update on the Yamaha and Aprilia rider situation. We'll rewind to some news that broke a few weeks ago, which we uh, didn't get a chance to discuss in full, surrounding Valentino Rossi's team next year and the Grassini outfit. Plus... I've made the bold decision to take on Keith and Pete in a Moto E debate. Uh, we'll be discussing just what the future holds for Moto E and motorcycle racing as we move towards a more sustainable and greener future. And I'll, of course, be getting the guys to answer your questions that you have very kindly sent in to us throughout the show. So, a packed show as ever. Let's get on with it. And first up, guys, after the huge news, which obviously dominated last week as we entered the summer break with Vinales announcing he was leaving Yamaha, we're just over a week on from that now and still lots of rumours swirling about where he may go and who will replace him. There's lots of pieces of the puzzle that still sort of need to be filled. And one major piece is actually Toprak, the world superbike racer, who uh, has announced he's signed to stay in superbikes despite being hotly tipped to be on Yamaha's shopping lists for the satellite team, at least. And so, Keith, what, what does this mean, do you think, uh, from your view? You know, he apparently said he turned down offers from MotoGP so clearly he feeling like he's better off in superbikes but where does this leave Yamaha where does this leave all the pieces in the puzzle Top Rat Razgadioglu is a brilliant rider um, he signed a two year deal to stay in world superbikes which will take him up to the age of 26 which already puts him uh, beyond the average age of MotoGP as it is at the moment so once he's done this deal with superbike uh, that could well be it. Depends, uh, you know, just unless he's a Jonathan Ray where he dominates everything, that could be it for him. He could be in Superbike for the rest of his life and be another Jonathan Ray. We'll have to wait and see. Um, I think you've got to read between the lines here. Um, the Turkish superstar that is Kenan Sofuaglu, who is his team manager, who is his personal manager, sorry, who is an absolute superstar. I think David Beckham, you know, the biggest name that you could have in sport in your country um, so for glue is so his influence is massive he is at the presidential table he's now in politics in the country of turkey um so you've got a massively influential manager uh, that looks after top rack um personally i think it's a bad decision but if you base it on the situation where so glue was a few years ago when he came in from 
being a five times world super sports champion, untouchable on a, on a 600 back in the day in world super sport. Um, when he came up into Moto2, which was the equivalent, of course, it didn't go well for him. When he went up into Superbike, actually, it didn't go well for him. So in my view, it was more about Keenan than it was about where he went and the, the performances that he came up with. But he's a massive influence and he has, as the manager, decided with Top Rack to keep him in Superbike. The fact is he was offered and he's still offered, as far as I'm aware, a Patronus place. That place that is becoming available at Patronus is where Top Rack could have gone. Now, that's a factory Yamaha in MotoGP. I'd have kept him out of MotoGP if it wasn't a good ride that he was going to. But the fact that he had a top line Yamaha situation where, it, where to be honest, they've got quite a lot of weaknesses in Yamaha at the moment. So it's a place to be if you're an up and coming superstar because you'll be able to put one over your teammates, um, potentially. Uh, so I think it's not a great decision. I can see where Keenan has advised him in that way, but I still don't think that it's the sharpest of moves personally. I mean, Top Rack is red hot at the moment. He's got to win the world title over Johnny Ray. You know, Jonathan Ray fell off at the weekend, so basically he's got a couple of points of a head start over him going into the next round of World Supers. But Jonathan Ray ain't going to lay down. We've seen what Jonathan Ray's capable of. And to beat, if he beats Jonathan Ray in, in this year, fair and square, in 2021, then Top Rasgodio Glue is going to be uh, absolutely sought after. And whether he's got a two-year deal or not in Superbike, we all know and we've all seen he can break contracts, providing the mutuality is there, providing... Everybody uh, wants to let you break that deal. Maverick Vinales is obviously the perfect case here, and that's what brought on all this discussion over which Yamaha rider is going to replace him, for instance. So, top rack, you know, great personality, massive country that he represents as well, which is always interesting from a political point of view in MotoGP. They've always got their hand on the political angle as far as the world is concerned. So, bringing in a, a top line MotoGP rider into uh, Turkey would be a, would, would be a fillet for uh, Dorna, so they've they've obviously got some interest there as well. Interesting, Peter, what Keenan said, manager of Top Rack said, he earned more money as a world superbike rider, super sport rider, than Johnny Ray earns. Wow! <laughs> On his wins, he earned more money than Johnny Ray does now. When Johnny Ray wins, according to Keenan, it's been quoted uh, that he takes more money home if he wins in a world super sport race than, than uh, your superbike world champion takes home. That's the kind of level uh, of sponsorship that he has being the top sportsman in a country. I you, if you're the number one sportsman in your country, then you might expect to earn those kind of bucks. I mean, as you say, it's a big call, isn't it? I think that all of us, when this announcement came out, sort of, wow, you know, we all just worry that in two years time, as you said, Keith, is it too late, you know? You know, Zarka was, what, 26 when he went and he was considered old and he was, you know, a double Moto2 champion. He'd been doing all of the, the circuits, you know, so he knew all of the tracks. And he, and he even got overlooked in favor of Rins at Suzuki, you know, the, the guy that he'd been beating in Moto2, but Rins was younger. So you, you just worry that, you know, is he going to get another chance? On the other hand, you know, why might he have, have, have delayed it? I mean, one rumor is that maybe he wasn't being offered the factory bike. And I, this is just a rumor. He was maybe it was just a the A spec bike, so so that's one potential reason if it's true. Um, otherwise, you've got to think as, as Keith was saying, 
Is it a case of if he does win the championship, there's a clause there that, that might allow him to move? His contract's with Yamaha Europe, which is a slightly different to Yamaha, the MotoGP part, let's say, but it's still Yamaha. So is there an option there? I don't know, but it definitely a big, big call to, uh, to stay for another two years at his age. I've heard a few rumours about the Yamaha Europe uh, operation and um, some of the things that they do behind the scenes. It's not at all like dealing with the Japanese um, factory direct. Um, I won't be disparaging in any way, but you can tell by the tone in my voice that I am being slightly disparaging in as much as that if I was a Yamaha man, I'd much rather have, rather have my Yamaha uh, contract with Yamaha in the factory so you're tied into that ladder. Um, and you're right, if he was only offered a, a, a lower spec bike, then Keenan is right to keep him out. Because the worst thing you can do is step up from, motor, from Superbike into MotoGP and fail. Um, having said that, there's plenty of pretty good uh, MotoGP riders that have gone the other way and failed. One or two that have done all right as well, of course. And you've, you've got to consider as well, you know, looking again at Keenan's, uh, Keenan Sofoglu's uh, example, as his manager, who's done good that's come through from World Supersport or from uh, production bike-based um, performances? You know, Petrucci, yeah, he's won a couple of races, he's done pretty well, but it's it's late in his life, it's late in his his career. Crutchlow, of course, as a World Supersport champion back in the day. You know, these guys that have come through, but are they the top line men as far as MotoGP is concerned? You know, you. you there's a, I think there's a, still quite a lot of bias in the paddock, in the MotoGP paddock against Superbike and Supersport. I really do genuinely think that. Um, I think they do genuinely, even though they, they you know, don't sing that tune, it does strike me that they consider Superbike and, and Supersport to be the lower league. Um, so you have really got to overcome quite a lot to get your top line motorcycle. You know, Cal Cruzzo, to be honest, you know, I don't think anyone would have given him a chance of winning MotoGP races back in the day. You know, last Brit that was doing that was was decades and decades ago. So Crutchlow really deserves huge accolades. I mean, he really, really does for what he achieved in MotoGP on a difficult motorbike as well. Let's face it, it was made for for Marquez over all those years, and Crutchlow dug in and got on with it. Um, you know, I think Crutchlow is an underrated MotoGP rider, to be honest with you, but. If he was still in Supersport, would you bet on him to come up into into MotoGP? I bet most teams wouldn't. You know, still, I still think there's that kind of slight begrudgingness of, of, about bringing uh, the uh, production-based people up into MotoGP. And, and that is that is the fear, isn't it, Keith? That these opportunities are so rare, and this clearly was. You know, they clearly were discussing. You know, it could have happened, and they turned it down. And you just do worry: will it? Will another offer? come along in two years' time. It's a long time. A lot of things can happen. You know, you've got to imagine Yamaha have been a bit, you know, they find themselves in this sticky situation where potentially they need two riders. But you've got to imagine they're not going to let that happen again. You know, they're going to start planning now and make sure that they have a contingency plan in place in the future. You know, now would have been the time where you think Toprak and, and Sofoglu would have had more leverage to maybe get the deal they wanted, maybe, okay, maybe not the factory bike in the first year, but maybe get a multi-year deal. And then, as you say, Keith, if it doesn't work out in two, three years' time, he could return to superbikes, still in his 20s, and still go on to be a multi-multi-champion. As we've, we've seen, you know, Reading, Bautista recently, a lot of guys have gone from MotoGP back to superbikes or two superbikes and made a success of it. So 
yeah, it's uh, it's a big decision. You know, we just hope it, the best works out for him. Got to look as well at the marketplace. I said that in the first place, the politics of this, the global politics of it. You've got Garrett Gerloff, the Texan. What's not to like about him? Particularly, his, his stock value's just gone up after the weekend at uh, Donington Park in the World Supers again. First time he's ever been to Donington Park. Second place in, a, in the uh, feature superbike race. I mean... And he's got that kind of way about him, hasn't he? He's got the girlfriend that looks really pretty. I know I shouldn't say that. It's politically wrong, but everybody still thinks it. You've got the situation in the garage where he just looks like the dude and he goes out and does the business on the track. When you've got the likes of him in the pipeline as well. And they're looking for Americans as well. You know, you, you, they need an American that's at the top in MotoGP. There's a lot going on out there in the politics of sport um, as we move through this year. KTM, when, when, when are they su suddenly going to have some displeasure down their ladder because there's got so many talented riders that are obviously going to, they're in that log jam of, of good little riders that are coming up through. They've got to let some go at some stage if, if we get to next year and, and they've got all their top seats filled. There's a lot going to be going on. Now was the time for Keenan to sign that up for top rack Rasgadioglu. It will be interesting to see quite how that works. I, I think I understand what Keenan was trying to do. He's trying to protect... Razgadioglu from that mistake, the inevitable mistake of, of stepping up too far too soon. I understand that. And we're not party to those contracts. Contracts are, are complex things by their very nature. And the fact is, is that you're right, Peter. He might well have a situation in there where he can jump ship in a year's time if a MotoGP ride comes up again at the end of this, this negotiation period, which everyone will be in at the end of next year. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But uh, on the surface of it, it looks like a sort of small mistake at the moment committing him to two more years in world superbike it might be with hindsight absolutely the right thing to do for keen for uh, software glue for top rack but i ain't convinced at the minute i think it's wrong i think the opportunity was there and he should have grabbed it that was that is my opinion from a long way away and without the uh, privy to the uh, actual contract yeah, well, that answers uh, Amanda McKenzie's question then. Well, Toprak seemingly ruling himself out for the time being of a potential MotoGP Yamaha switch. And, of course, the other big player that is going to be affected with all of this as well is the Aprilia team. You know, what happens with them? There's a seat up for grabs as well. The rumour straight away was that Vinales might be looking to go alongside him, uh, go alongside in that uh, uh, Aprilia seat. But what does this mean as well for Davizioso? It looked like he was deciding on potentially to have a comeback there. But now with a Yamaha seat up for grabs, does that suddenly change things in the marketplace? So many moving parts at the moment. Dovi, Dovi's put himself in the position he's in. You know, he's going to go off motocrossing and enjoying his millions. Um, so I don't think it's a hardship thing, situation for Dovi. It will be from the fact that he hasn't achieved what he set out to achieve, and that's to be world champion. Um, that's going to rest badly with him for the rest of his life. There is no doubt in my mind about that. Um, but the fact is he's too old. You know, Battistella, his, his manager, is as sharp as you like was in the paddock at Donington at the weekend as well. So you know that there's a bit of manoeuvring going on. You know, top men are looking at the, the, the World Superbike paddocks as well. You know, even Neil Hodgson was off his ass this weekend and was in the, the World Superbike paddock doing some work for, for Alex Lowe's, of course, who he manages. You know, you, you looked around in the paddock and you, all you could see behind the fences were, you know, the faces of people you know that are trying to do a bit of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. But... It's a very difficult time and timing is everything. Getting it right at this point is so, so important. Last week, I tried to sort of 
just sort of disturb people on their summit break and just try and get an update on what, what's going on here. Now, there wasn't much to come out of it, but the one thing that I did hear back was that the Morbidelli to the factory Yamaha team is not a done deal yet. I mean, Petronas said it's not even seriously discussed. Now, the interesting thing there is that their kind of priority order with contracts, if you like, their, their first priority was the Dorna contract, which they've done. That's, that's done. They're on the grid until 2026. And then after that, comes the, the Patronus contract. You know, that, that needs to be renewed for next year. After that is the bike contract with Yamaha. And that's the stage they're at now. There's, those two things are linked. So, you know, that's where they are at the moment. And they said, after that, it's the riders. So if, if that is the kind of the, the order they're going in, then you can perhaps understand that they haven't made any big decisions on, on Frankie or is he going to go, isn't he? We've said already he's got this contract or some sort of option for next year. How will the team feel if the factory team sort of whip him away and, and sort of interfere with their rider lineup for the second year running? Um, and then the other thing I heard was that, as, as Keith has mentioned, you know, the, the Dobby stuff. I mean, no one wanted to go on record, but it seems like he's still got his heart set on on racing. Now, now that was a bit of a surprise. It seemed like he, you might think, well, if Vinales is taking the race seat, he'll take the the test riding deal. But as Keith says, you know, his manager is there at Donington. Was he talking to Yamaha? I mean, that is the only race seat potentially for next year that's still available. So presumably, Dovi is putting his hat in the ring there and hoping that that one of those places will go to him. I mean, at first glance, you think, well, that's a bit of a surprise. But you think, you know, Quattararo and Dovi, that would be quite a lineup, wouldn't it? As, as far as you're not you're not disturbing your star guy, are you? You know, you, we always remember when when Rossi was at the peak of his success at Yamaha, and then they brought in Lorenzo. And it just gave that, you know, you, you know, Valentino, you are the present, you are our man, but that guy over there is the future. You know, that was the, the, the kind of, the kind of atmosphere that seemed to be created. And Rossi ended up leaving a few years later. And you just wonder if, if Yamaha brought in maybe say a, a Raul Fernandez, which might be their only trump card, as we said, is that they could offer the factory team, which KTM can't because their riders are signed. Would that make Quattraro think, oh, hang on a minute, you know, maybe they're already thinking beyond me. Um, whereas if you bring Dobby in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you bring put Dobby into that seat, there's not going to be that dynamic. It might be a bit like the Rossi Edwards thing, which worked out great for Yamaha. I, I don't know, but but those were the two things that basically I gathered was that the Morbidelli move is is not a done deal yet, and that the Dobby still basically his priority is to race next year. Dobby's case is um, he's on the descendancy. Some of the younger ones. Are on the ascendancy. It's a question of, of whether the risk that they take by bringing the likes of Davizioso back will he be as good or better than he was when he left. My answer to that would be I doubt it. Things move on in this game so incredibly fast. Even for someone of Davizioso standard, I mean, he, I can't believe he hasn't been riding. I can't believe that a man of his quality. But that underlines the quality of the grid in MotoGP. And more than that, the availability of top line riders coming in. You know, Miguel Oliveira, would you have had him where he is at the moment? You knew he was good, you know, winning races. You've got a situation where Davizioso almost has to prove himself again in testing. It's almost like, you know, when he gets on a motorbike, if he sets the world on fire in testing, he might have you know, a few people that sit up and think, well, he's there, we can have him if we want him, you know, we've got to pay him a bit more money than we would do for some of these guys, but he's still damn fast. Or 
like you've just said, the Rail Fernandez link. You know, so many good youngsters coming through who you've got 10 more years out of yet, whereas Davizioso, you've got one or two. Your investment is only over one or two years. If you were stuck and if the if the market was, yeah, you wouldn't have Lorenzo sat on the on the sidelines. You wouldn't have Cruzzo sat on the sidelines. You've got Davizioso sat on the sidelines. <laughs> There'll be a few more soon. You know, Valentino Rossi's going to be sat on the sidelines. And Davizioso, thirty-five years old, past the cliff, well old. He's not. He's done. Imagine how I feel. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? How how each year there's they just people you know riders and drivers getting younger and younger, and each time. But actually, Pete, in your uh, investigations uh, last week, have you had, is there any more rumblings about where Vinales might be off to? Because the only the one rumor that everybody heard was Aprilia, but and, and you know there's no smoke without fire, is there? No, there's no fire without smoke. You had it right for this right, time. Yes. Without fire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, as far as everyone seems to be aware, it's Aprilia, but no official announcement. And until something's officially announced, you, you know, you've got to keep an open mind to this sport, because as we were saying last week, if you maybe just wait a bit, maybe some offers come out the woodwork that you weren't expecting. You know, you don't know. But on the other hand, would, would Maverick have left Yamaha without having something lined up, you know, for sure? You, you know, I don't know. But Probably <laughs> the way his mind works. You know, his manager would have been pulling any remaining <laughs> hairs he had out, that's for sure. But the fact is that probably, I think Maverick was in that position that, that he just was going to jump. You know, Zarco, we've seen it before. There are certain personalities in the paddock where, you know, just got to make a move. And, and it, it just didn't seem to work out very well at all for him at Yamaha. He'd had enough of that. He was out of there, whatever the circumstances. You know, it's... um. And you know what? To some extent, I have a great amount of respect for him for doing that. I think, you know, it's not the way that I think 99.9% of the paddock would have reacted because you dig in, you get on, you're on one of the best motorbikes there is overall over an entire year. The Yamaha is one of the best motorbikes to ride, bar none. You know, you get over your problems. I think we covered it in the last podcast that we did. You know, I, I'm stunned that he's so vocal over over the way that he cannot work out what's going on. That's it's just not a MotoGP man. They're like scientists when it comes to working out what's going on with the bike and relaying that information back to crew chiefs and crew chiefs working with them to get around whatever that problem might be. Uh, it's still a motorbike, a wheel at each end, and it's about balance at the end of the day and power delivery. You know, these things have been <laughs> been dealt with for decades in, in Grand Prix. You, you go back to any era you like, the same problems apply. You know, they're a little bit more complex now in that the electronics obviously have to be dialed in correctly. But then again, you've got a million more adjustments that you can make to get it right. Um, I just can't understand how he can't work with whichever crew chief he's got to, to get it better for him. It just doesn't make sense to me. What it does say to me is that it's north of the eyebrows. You know, it's, it's something that he is struggling with and he's going to have that same problem wherever he goes and whoever he works with. And that's my fear for Maverick. Brilliant rider, but honestly, something's just not quite right. Well, we'll have to uh, wait and see on that one. As the summer break continues, we may well get a, a deluge of news before the break is up as well, which uh, fingers crossed we will. But we've had a, a lot of listener questions coming as well. And on a couple of riders that uh, perhaps we haven't talked about too much in the past uh, episodes we've done. And, and one of them is um, Alex Rins. Uh, 
you know, he said recently in the news that, uh, you know, without they're, they're lacking this uh, this ride height device and depending on the track, that's lo losing them between three and four tenths of a second. And, you know, his results so far have been sixth, fourth, DNF, 20th, DNF, DNF. Then he didn't start, obviously, for that incident with his uh, phone, 11th, 11th. You know, so... Scott Rogerson asks, should Alex Rins be worried about his seats? You know, and what uh, Mark Bennett also says, you know, what's gone wrong with Rins? You know, potential to be a world champion, but it, it seemed to go wrong with his practice all the way back in Jerez in 2020. That's, so that's, you know, tracing it back to last year. So thoughts on Rins so far this season and, and what the future holds for him potentially? Well, since we're in the um, two weeks of Wimbledon at the moment over here and uh, you're hearing about unforced errors being the mm. phrase made many times by many of the participants, that's the phrase that comes to mind with Rins. It's many, many unforced errors, his own mistakes that he's made. I mean, riding into the back of a Dorna truck on a push bike is one of them, of course. Um, I mean, we can smile about it, but you just wonder, don't you, quite where that level of... of unforced error comes from many going right the way back you, you can you can see Rins having made a mistake when he looks like he's got the job done it's that must play on his mind it must be something that really you, you're always looking for something else like you always want to find something to blame obviously that's a motorcycle racer that's a sportsman generally what, what the hell can I who else can I blame for this you know not having the launch control launch um, tackle is probably something that Suzuki will get over perhaps in this break. Um, expect something surely that we're going to see when you go five weekends off. You can be fairly sure that Suzuki aren't sitting there, you know, eating their sandwiches. They're going to be working out something to 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 sort that out by the time we come back. But is that the thing they need? I mean, they don't quite qualify where they should do, so they put themselves in a bad position on the grid to start with, which is always something that you never want to do because you get caught up in someone else's accident. If you're you know, if you've got speed at the front front of the field, you need to put yourself there. When you were, when the guys were coming back to you, the podcast request to to give us some questions, I noticed there, there were a couple of things in there about what bikes are going to perform later on in the year, assuming we get to some of the tracks that are later on in the year. And the Suzuki was performing on tracks that you wouldn't have expected it to perform on. You know, the Red Bull Ring, for instance, it went really well at the Red Bull Ring, which surprised me, you know, because it's a horsepower track. It's a track you would expect the the KTM, the, the Ducati, even the Honda to be really, really good at, which it is. But it, it's kind of, it's so difficult to see. We're, we're such a tight margin between all of these manufacturers now, that little bit, and Rins can't give up those mistakes that you would have got away with in the past, that you could have got away with in the past. He's going to be questioning that. The team are going to be looking at that. They're going to try and work on making sure he doesn't make those kind of mistakes. Will that fix it? Don't know. Over to you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing is I think he'll be happy he's got a two-year contract because if the contracts were up this year with this run of form that, that we've been discussing and those results, it'll be the last thing you need to be trying to negotiate a ride. So the, the good news for Alex is that he's, you know, he knows he's going to be a Suzuki rider next year. He's got some time to turn it around. Um, I mean, this, this year is obviously pretty much written off. I mean, it, you, you've got to hope that he's going to get the, some wins, some podiums. But in terms of the points, he's, he's what, 14th. So, you know, it, it's it's over there. But, I mean, the thing with Rins is that in terms of speed, I think he's out-qualified uh, Mia well, he came most back races. He really strong so after that that's one thing. in the back of the Dorna track, didn't he? he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, he's got the speed, which, which 
again, that will work in its favor. Most GP teams, it's a bit like we were talking about the superbike riders before and trying to get a break. You know, they want to see that you're fast. And that, that, that gets their attention because I think the teams always think, oh, well, we can make him more consistent or we can dial out his mistakes or whatever else. But if someone's not fast, they're kind of like, mm, you know. And so I think Suzuki will be, well, we just need to get Alex sorted. But as Keith's saying, what is the problem? The problem, it, there's so many different mistakes that it's hard to outline. Like, where do you start? Because it's not like every, every fall he's made has been the same thing. You know, so it's not okay. We need to work on the front of the bike at a certain lean angle, or it, it's been all sorts of issues that that he's had trouble with. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to imagine that Maverick, one of the places when he decided that he was leaving Yamaha, you know, he he must have given Suzuki a call, and said, "Is there any chance?" Now, I think I don't think Suzuki are going to break a contract midway through or anything else, but. You know, in a year's time when all of the contracts are up, you've got to imagine that depending on whatever Maverick does next and how it goes, that Maverick will be one of the guys that's that's on the phone to Suzuki. And, and you know, that's a bike that a lot of people want to ride. It's it's a consistent bike, as Keith was saying. It's been fast at a lot of tracks that people don't expect. Um, it, it's one of the bikes when we were making our championship predictions and I went for the top three now. One of the reasons was simply because the only people that I think can make a step are Suzuki in the second half of the year, if they get this, you know, the right, the rear right height thing, that might help a bit. And I think Marquez and Honda. But do I think they're going to they're going to break into that top three? And that was what made me a Manar. And I decided, you know, what well, I think the Ducati goes well at Austria and everything else. But there is that potential for Suzuki to improve in the second half of the season. But yeah, Rins needs to make the most of it. He needs to to just settle down, use this break to, I mean, I don't know what he needs to do, whether he needs to do like a Quattararo sports psychologist and really try and get to the root of the issues and and find out why these mistakes are creeping in, but he can't keep making them. Well, I think you've- I miss wild cards. I miss wild cards. If we had wild cards again, with that opportunity for people to come in on a factory bike, just to, I know the economics of it doesn't work so well nowadays and testing is, is something that's been closed down, but. Back in the day when you could have a, a MotoGP, I mean, we still get them occasionally. Piro comes in, obviously, to, to run the Ducati. But if you had a wild card Suzuki situation, a wild card Yamaha situation, you know, Top Rack could come in and have a go on the on the factory MotoGP bike. You know, Cal could come back in and have a go on a factory Honda. I think it ought to be part of the constitution that factories have to supply so many wild cards of the year. Um, well love me for saying that of course cost being what they are well actually this, the second <laughs> part of scott rogerson's question was could you clear up when or what determines teams getting to use their wild card riders when they feel like it i think it's more likely the case isn't it they make an application right. to uh Erta and um they're allowed to run a wild card if if, if they feel like it. it i think the economics of it again not only are things so tight um I mean, this applies also to World Superbikes. I, you know, some of the best races we've seen at somewhere like Brands Hatch on the on the Grand Prix track at Brands Hatch, when you've got three British wildcards that have come out of the the British series and and kicked the butts of the the superstars in World Superbike. I mean, fantastic days. Um, and if we could do something along those lines uh, similarly, it would be great again. If we could do something in MotoGP. I mean, I just think that there needs to be as this has become tighter and tighter and tighter at the top and as we've got this log jam of talent coming up there's very little in the way of opportunity to actually run 
people to run your wild card, your traditional wild card rider, that guy that's left of field that you you just want to give a chance, give a try to. The Garrett Gerloffs in Valencia looked really, really good in, in free practice. Sadly, he didn't get to race. You know, there's a talent waiting to happen in MotoGP for me, and I and he won't be slack in, in taking If someone offers him a decent ride, he's in MotoGP. He's not going to do what Top Rack did and stay in Superbike. I guarantee you. Um, he knows where the premier class is, and that is still MotoGP. In, you know, it's going to upset a lot of Superbike people when you say that kind of thing, but it is still the premier class. It is the leading prototype class. It is the Formula One of motorbikes. That's where you want to be if you're going to be a top-line man. Yeah, as Keith said, the wild cards, if you depends if you've got concessions, as they call it or not, as to how many you can have. And then, yeah, you apply... And, and the normal thing is that, that they're not supposed to have all of the wild cards at the same track, let's say. So you don't have six wild cards at one race. Um, but, it, but it sounds like Danny Pedroza might do a wild card for KTM. Um, it, it seems it's been applied for, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will be taken up. Um, and then Piro is another guy. The, the other question talk, coming to Gerloff is that, you know, Morbidelli sounds like he's going to be out after the summer break for Austria if this eight weeks of rehabilitation. And I think the, 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 the World Superbike clashes with the Austrian, the first of the Austrian races. So who will Petronas put on that bike? Will it, will it be Cal as their natural, you know, the, the, the test rider and replacement rider? Or will they, will they give someone else a, a shot well, on it? That's when it comes One back to what you were saying earlier, Peter. If they've got a European Yamaha contract or if they've got a factory Yamaha contract. If they've got a factory Yamaha contract, you're straight in. You know, factory, factory decides. There's not that other kind of parochial, local, localised interest that um, that usually goes on in these situations. So, sorry. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely, absolutely agree that it'd be great to see people get a chance on the road GP bike. I remember, I think it was Honda, they used to give the the, the, the 125 champion, or I remember Thomas Luthi, uh, you know, Luthi, he would do a test. There'd be a test at Valencia. They, they would get some of the riders from 125, 250, give them a bit of a try on an RCV. That kind of thing was always a, you know, of course, everyone says it doesn't matter, but everyone's looking at the lap times. And it's just getting that that chance, as Keith says, it's so difficult just to get on one of these bikes now, you know? Lewis Hamilton was quite quick. <laughs> I think I've seen, I think I've <laughs> Valencia, seen that. Valencia, when well, you yeah. had that ride round, in, it was it was called the switch, wasn't it? Where um, Valentino <laughs> ran the, the Formula One car and uh, and Lewis, Lewis actually goes quite quite well on a bike. I've got to say, you don't look bad on it either. Start. He hasn't got a clue really at the front end, judging by you know, when, when you see him sticking in. I remember thinking, "Oh, that looks a bit." A bit. I think I've. <laughs> I, I remember chatting oh, yeah. to to Simon Crayfar, um, who I think had, had given Lewis a bit of advice, and I think he he'd been on track with Lewis, you know, uh, somewhere, and he said, "You know, the guy is quick because he just throws it into a corner." As if it's got four wheels, you know. He just, you know, his 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 head is at that speed of, of an F one cornering, you know. And he said, yeah, he said he's not afraid. <laughs> no, that's a fact. I think I've seen that switch program a million times. It gets shown constantly on uh, on Sky. <laughs> but um, well, thank you for uh, Mark and Scott's questions there. Um, Another question that has been brought up uh, while we sort of pick out a few riders from the field, uh, because, you know, there is this, 
you know, it's probably going to become quite a, a big problem for MotoGP is this logjam of talent coming up through the ranks as well as the talent in the, you know, currently on the grid. And Motorcycle Adventures asks, what is the future for Alex Marquez? Will he ever be a championship contender? Would he be back to the HRC factory team? Or, you know, will he switch to another manufacturer? This is obviously not to mention any of the struggles that all Honda riders are currently dealing with as well. So, you know, Alex Marquez, who I don't think we've actually spoken about once this season on, on the podcast at the moment but not in any detail anyway so yeah am 73 what are we thinking alex marquez um well as long as his brother keeps doing well he's um he's a sure sure fit isn't he <laughs> at the end of the day because um honda are never going to cross mark marquez if mark uh, comes back and continues to to do everything that you, I mean, is that too cynical of me i don't think it is to be frank with you i think that um alex marquez is a double world champion <laughs> don't forget it he's a double world champion he can ride a motorbike you know the fact that he hasn't quite performed yet um but then again nobody is on the honda you know just just look down the list it's it's not working for even takanakagami who's a is a massive talent it's still not quite where it needs to be you know i think that this next year as we've said just about in every podcast when this technical what's it called a moratorium or a, or a leveling freeze yeah freeze that's a good word that'll do for me um <laughs> where this this technical freeze has come you know no one's been able to do anything really with with their motorbikes you know there are little innovations that have been able to come like the shapeshifter thing that that ducati seems to have perfected like we're waiting for suzuki to do after the break perhaps but as far as the motors and everything else is concerned they haven't been able to do anything in two years so th there's going to be this massive all of a sudden load of stuff that turns up in the truck and maybe we'll see the hondas leap forward again you know all the developments that's working back in the factory maybe it'll be ducati maybe it'll be you know ducati really you know dawner have allowed ducati into a position of strength in that the data that they will get from all of those motorbikes being on track next year is so valuable data is everything in any kind of motorsport and to have that amount of access to that amount of data across all those factory bikes that are going to be on the grid, Ducati have an advantage next year, in my view. Mm. Well, it, eight bikes will be on the grid for the first time since 2018, won't it? With VR46 signing a three-year deal, along uh, with Grassini on a two-year deal as well for Ducati. So they really are in a, a bit of a, a stronghold there. So Ducati, clearly the, the manufacturer to be with. You mentioned Grassini. That made me smile as soon as you said that because I like their new sponsor that they've just announced uh, today, yes. I think it is. Uh, you all. Sounds like something Colin Edwards would say. You all. <laughs> sounds, like, <laughs> sounds like a Texan sponsor. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're pulling in the money at Grassini at the moment. I mean, it's, uh, that's a, that's, that can only be good for that team and for, for, the, for the grid in general. But it kind of underlines what I've said. If you've got a well-financed team that's got lots of factory data as well, um, it's going to be an interesting combination when we get to the grid next year. Interesting, though, as well, actually, wasn't it, Pete, that the VR46 deal, you know, apparently on offer was a Yamaha discounted rate as well, but yet they still chose to go with Ducati. So that's saying a lot, isn't it? No? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't quite know what happened there, but we there's this talk about they all gathered around a table and came to this sort of conclusion somehow. And, yeah, we don't know the details yet because, of course, it's tied in with whatever Rossi's going to do next year. So it's going to be a while till we know exactly what's going on. But 
Yes, I mean, in fairness to Yamaha, they were open at the start of the year at the team launch. Lynn Jarvis said, look, we'll be talking to Petronas and we'll probably be talking to VR46. You know, he said if they, if they have a MotoGP team. So it wasn't, there was nothing kind of secret about them speaking with these teams. But yeah, obviously the fact that, that you've got Rossi riding for the other team, I mean, that must have created issues. And, and yeah, you know, was it just in the end, they decided, look, it's just going to get too too difficult. But you, I mean, if that is true, that, that Rossi's team was offered a, a massive discount, I mean, that's, you, you would not take that well if you're Sepang Racing and Petronas, would you? But take your hat off to Valentino Rossi and the, and the management of VR46 in that they have chosen what they think is the right tool for their for the job. But the, you know, again, it comes down at the end of the day to not the discount, it comes down to what you view is going to be the best for your riders and your team into the future. Yamaha, again, I've been quite critical of Yamaha over the years in as much as that they always seem to be on the back foot when it comes to be loading their team. They've got a brilliant motorbike that's worked absolutely wonders around the world even when it's 10 mile an hour slower than everything else in a straight line it's still the bike you would choose to be on given that opportunity it's a great motorbike but they haven't really capitalized on that in the loading of the the team with the youngsters coming through and so on and so forth and some of the decisions they've made you just feel like it's all a bit retrospective rather than proactive let, you know let's let's make the decision and start building that future We've got the best product out there. Everybody wants to ride our bike. And here you are with one of the men that rides their bike, knocking back that opportunity for his team. That's a massive slap in the face for Japan. Really, really, really is. Bearing in mind that, you know, <laughs> the last time Valentino had anything to do with Ducati, him and Jeremy Burgess were going to be able to fix it in a couple of weeks. And he had one of the worst years he's ever had on a motorbike. It's, you know, and that was, that was with a Ducati. Obviously, he's, <laughs> he can see a little bit more in the future with Ducati and where they're going and, and the effort they're putting in to get that bike to where it needs to be, um, he must consider, forget about the finances, he must consider that, that his bet for his team is better with Ducati than it would have been with Yamaha. It will have been based on sheer numbers, on sheer, you know, what's the future hold, that prospect of where the future's going. And he obviously felt it wasn't with Yamaha. Stunning, really, uh, when you think about it. And from Ducati's point of view, they now get that academy, the VR46 academy. They, they, they get it ready-made, that stepladder up to MotoGP. You stole it off me. Exactly that, Peter. In exactly that. The, the thing that I've been talking about with Yamaha, I don't believe they've been building the ladder strong enough for their future in MotoGP. They've had it stolen off them. They should never have allowed that. They should have been in there. You know, like that whole access to the VR46 academy is now gone. Terrible. Big mistake. Ooh, well, that certainly is uh, bringing up a lot of uh, points, but there are just six seats, six, six rides still technically up for grabs uh, for uh, next season. So I want to do a bit of quick fire with both of you uh, as we sort of round this towards the end. There's one at Aprilia alongside Alicia Spargo. Who's getting it? <laughs> Vinales, I think. Vinales, yeah, it's got to be Vinales, hasn't it? Okay, two at VR46. Now, obviously, with that Ducati deal, who's on there? Well, Marini's on one. <laughs> Hold, holding off Morbidelli's an interesting one, isn't it, really, at the minute? Because Morbidelli being an academy rider as well, you know, if, if, if Petronas and he fall out for whatever reason, maybe there's a possibility there. 
Okay. Um, one at Tech 3, obviously alongside Remy Gardner. Still lots of rumours around Ralph Fernandez, but still could go to, could go to anyone. Difficult one. Hervé will know what he wants. Um, I think that that, like the Aprilia deal, it's who's in the market. It's who, you know, it's, it's the way that, the, almost the way the chips fall. It's not what you want. It's what, what choices you are as a rider eventually offered. Um, and your management is, is, is guiding you towards. So, I don't know. I'll tell you what, if there was any team in the paddock that that I'd want to ride for, it would be Irvin Guy. Guy Coulon and, and Hervé Poncherel just... Oh, hang on a minute, Pramac. I might, I might, they might be up against it a bit there. <laughs> Pramac serve superb lunches and have a party every Friday night. <laughs> so... So I think I'd have to, uh, maybe Pramac or Hervé, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, this quick fire section has really backfired dramatically here, but I'm going to carry on one last, right, but from both of you, or Keith, I'll come to you first. Who is going to be at Petronas SRT next year? Oh. Come on, don't think about it. <laughs> I've, yeah, but the trouble is I've got to think about it because I've got one of them brains. It's, uh... it's, it's frying my brain at the moment. These last few places are so difficult yeah. to actually nail down, aren't they? You'd be mugs to get rid of Morbidelli unless a Yamaha pinch him across to the factory. Um, Morbidelli has, has, has got to really stay there. Um, I don't know. Over to you, Pete. I'm not very good as a manager, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good with the money. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think Gerloff must be the obvious or, or, or heading the queue. And then you hear about maybe Vierhe or Dixon because that, come, that comes to you know moving up their Moto2 guys. But... They don't have the results yet, unless there's a stunning turnaround. There was even one rumor that if, if, if Rossi did ride for VR46, that Bezeki might go to Petronas. But again, I think that would be very much on if if Rossi or someone else takes that VR46 seat. Otherwise, I think Bezeki's probably going to be there. So for, for me, I think Gerloff is in pole position now that Top Rack has, mm. has re-signed the Superbike. Yeah, top rack has ruined it. It really has, isn't it? <laughs> okay, one more for you. If you were deciding who to put alongside Fabio Quartararo, who would you put in out of those who are available? Well, that that again would be Morbidelli yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah, if, if Morbidelli stays, but honestly, I'm. I almost think Dovi for one year, just to, you know, I, I wouldn't rule that out, you know? Um, no, no. <laughs> I'm not ruling it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but I, I think, you know, you, I think he'd just be such a, a if Quattro is going to be your guy like Mark, you know, look at, look at who Honda put alongside Mark. This is, this is how I'm kind of looking at it. You know, they, they put Paul, they put Alex, they put, they put people to, to kind of, you know, back up the guy and, and everything else. They're not, but they don't, they didn't put in somebody that they think is going to actually replace Mark or, or, or you know, rise up and, 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 and cause that kind of battle within the pit garage. And I, I just think Dovi, if, he, if his priority really is racing and there is this chance just to do a one-year deal, you know, he's got a chance to show what he can do. Yamaha needs someone for one year, gives them time to then look at all the contracts which are up for grabs at the end of next year. I, I think, you know, if they can't get a Fernandez, someone like that, I mean, he's the only star guy that really stands out for me for Moto2, you know, with Remy already signed up. 
for me, why not? Why not go for him for one year? Look at the year that Dovi had on that Tektois Yamaha. I know it was a long time ago, but he's still Tektois Yamaha's most successful rider. You know, six podiums, you know, more podiums than Spees, Crutchlow, all of those guys. And, and I don't know, he went well on the bike. I'd, I'd just like to see him try it, to be honest. I love all this uh, social media media speculation, you know, because it's absolutely pointless. <laughs> because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, <laughs> It'll shake out the yeah. way it shakes out. And we'll all go, you know, some of us will go, well, I got that completely wrong. And others will go, look at how smart I am. <laughs> we love a prediction. Yeah, you've got to predict, you've got to predict everybody at, at some yeah. point, And then you just, you just, you know, forget the, the ones you got wrong. Okay, well, let's finish this bit off with uh, answering Harvey Todd's question for you two. Which rider has surprised you the most in a good or bad way during this first half of the season? For Harvey, personally, it's Joanne Zarco. Yeah, Zarko, I can see where you're coming from with that. Um, I think you've already said it. We've already talked about it. Rins mm. has been a disappointment. Mia particularly. I think whether that's you know down to them or down to the fact the bike hasn't moved on or, or, or not, I think that Mia has disappointed me in this early part of the year at the moment, I must say. And the fact there's no fans trackside, that really disappoints me. Yeah, um, Zarko, completely agree with that one. Banyaya, to a, to a lesser extent for me, has, has, has surprised me positively as well. But I think Zarko, you know, fantastic season. I mean, we overlooked him. But... I've got one more. Polis Bargro, massive disappointment. I really thought he'd get on good with that Honda. I thought his aggressive style, it's just that, that just went through my head. You can almost feel the cogs turning when you ask a question, Harry. And it was, um, yeah, Polis Bargro, okay. very disappointed. I thought he would be faster on that Honda than he's been. And Morbidelli, I mean, just on the basis of his results at the end of last year, and then the start of this year, we know why, of course, you know, the bike has not changed, but I think there was that hope that, you know, okay, maybe it's some power tracks he's going to struggle, but that he, he could still, you know, he's had one podium, hasn't he? And I think, you know, this is a guy who was three race wins, run up in the title. I think he would have expected a bit more. Well, thank you for that, gents. Now we've got time for uh, a little bit of a debate, which I wanted to bring in while we have this sort of off season. And I know you've both probably got some very strong views on this. Uh, and we have already teased. <laughs> bit far, come on. Uh, we've teased the fact, haven't we, that um, we thought we'd have a little chat about Moto E, the all electric class of motorcycle racing, which has been going since 2019, supporting MotoGP at selected races. And the reason I wanted to bring this up was a i know keith has some strong views and b as someone who personally enjoys and, and is quite fascinated by sort of the future of motorsport and how that relates to, to what we're seeing on our roads and the entertainment factor amongst it all i felt like it was worth a discussion because unlike some of the electric racing series which i watch so formula e extreme e as well which is launched this year moto e to me a hundred percent just seems like a bit of an afterthought the coverage isn't the same it's generally not talked about as much from where i stand but on the other hand i think it's brilliant that dawner sort of created this world cup to run alongside the main stage because it's also so important that we have this focus on electric power in the motorbike world because whether you like it or not that is the way surely the world is going dawner have been dead clever because the e free or whatever it is in your four-wheeled um, department that split away you know they didn't keep hold of that in the formula one um, circles did they and it, it split away and so the potential has gone somewhere else the marketing potential has gone somewhere else whereas dawner 
have clamped down. They didn't give it a Grand Prix tag. They called it a World Cup, which again is smart. Very good thinking by Dorna. Got a lot of time for these Spanish guys. They, they kind of work it out fairly well. Now, Moto E, for me, is too early. But given what I've just said, it needed to be too early because otherwise they would have let someone else have that championship chance. And therefore, in the future, as you're talking quite rightly, Harry, we are going to be on alternative fuels at some stage in the future, hopefully after I'm dead, because it just drives me insane. But the point being is that we will be on alternative fuels. And so therefore, Dorna MotoGP will eventually be an electric series or mm. whatever the fuel is at the time, yeah, because that's where we're going. Fossil fuels, like me, are a thing of the past. You know, it's something that uh, the word fossil and hue and go together quite well, don't they, in a minute? You youngsters <laughs> on the other side of the screen. But the, but the point being is, is that why I say it's a bit soon, as in on track, whereas it's not too soon politically, because they've got to clamp that down, where it's too soon on track is that I still believe 100% that we are not there yet. The bloody thing, the, the bikes are, they're not horrible, but they're very close to being horrible. They're too heavy. The, the performances of them go after five or six or seven laps, depending on the track. You've got no distance attached to any kind of a race. They're not a nice thing to ride particularly, although some people have managed to get around it quite well. Um, and then you've got the environmental bit of it, which I think is a massive con. I just think that the electric vehicles are still a massive con because we're not yet into that. Uh, for sure, if you're driving an electric vehicle, it's putting out no emissions. Now, I think that's a great thing. If you live in a city and your kids live in a city and you don't want to pollute their lungs and all the rest of it. So, yes, massively pro uh, a, a something that doesn't emit the kind of poisons that a normal combustion engine do. But then again, at the end of the day, when you build those batteries, you're raping a country's resources somewhere to make the batteries. You're transporting them around the world, using up loads of carbon miles. You're then fitting them in your vehicle, which that little bit of it, if you just take that in isolation, is really, really efficient and really good for the environment. But then the other end of that is you've got a dirty, great battery, you know, like your good old phone that you've got to toss away at some stage. And, 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 find a big hole where you can chuck all this rubbish back into. So environmentally, that's not so great as well. Then there's the situation where charging the things up, yeah, fine if you're in a nuclear kind of environment or if you've got a windmill in your garden or something like that. But when you're burning a great big pile of coal down the road here to, to, to fuel your car, I don't believe that the sustainability is taken as an overall package. This is only my opinion. I am no scientist. But it doesn't seem to be that we're getting the whole picture we're not being given the whole picture we've got this lovely little point that we're looking at which is the environmentally wonderful car when the prius goes by whispering along and you know the birds are singing and everybody's happy and the flowers are growing but the fact is, is the, the the front end of that is is the minerals and the stuff you need to make the batteries and then the back end of that is dumping all the rubbish after it's finished and you replace it with another battery why didn't we go hydrogen? Why don't we go to hydrogen? Why, not, why didn't not ready that yet, I don't think. I would argue that that would be the logical next phase. I, I, I personally think electric is the future. I think electric is what's going to get us to the next stage, which is probably hydrogen. But, you know, coming, picking up on, on what Keith said there, Pete, you know, the, these bikes are so much heavier as well. Just looking at, at the stats, they're over, you know, 239 kilograms. A Moto2 bike is 134 kg. Moto GPs 
157 and then you know the races that they're, they're short races as well so unlike in the other racing series you know in the four wheel world which you know it's all about battery management and things like that which directly has a translation into the road car world it, motor e i get the point that perhaps it's too early because also when you look at what's on the road there aren't that many electric bikes on the road anyway and if they are they are ridiculously expensive but you know i think it's hard to disagree with what you're saying there keith about how you know dawna had to pounce early on this because otherwise someone else was going to do it and also it is the spark and the catalyst for you know creating this change and in creating the awareness around more electric vehicle technology in the bike world no or am i am i spouting absolute rubbish there pete i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no no exactly i i heard the same as keith which is you know dawna realized they had to do this because someone else would otherwise the, the other the other kind of secondary potential benefit that I heard from Dorna was that there's some sponsors that that won't back fossil fuel sports and and the, the thought was that maybe by having an electric bike class you'll, you'll you'll bring those into the wider you know Grand Prix world whether whether that's actually happened I'm not sure but that was that was the other thing that I heard from Dorna as, as to why they, they wanted to do it as far as the racing the bikes yeah I, I agree with what you're saying that the trouble is that it's, it's pretty much a bit slower than Moto3. The bikes are a lot heavier than Moto3. The racing is kind of close, like Moto3, but the races are a lot shorter as well. There's not really any positive. It needs something to be different, in my mind. At the moment, it's just, you know, it's almost trying to copy the established classes, and it's not as good as any of them. And it doesn't have anything of its own to kind of counteract that. I know they have this e-poll thing, but I don't, I'm not really a fan of that. That's something different. I mean, why why don't they put lights on the you know put put like a light bar on the front that goes green when they hit the throttle and red when they put the brakes on or or, or something like that so people watching you know it's electric or or um, you know link it up with this esport thing and have a team or something I don't know but what they really don't you like the beeper down the paddock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What it what it needs to be is competition. I think that's you know. I mean, just like in the early days of Grand Prix, you, you had the competition improving the internal combustion engines and everything else. They they need some more brands in there. But I understand completely why they've made it a single bike. I mean, it would have just been so risky at the start. It would have just been battery races of, of you know, whoever has the, the best battery wins and that would have been it. So I understand why they've done it. But I think it started off as a bit of a curiosity. I think there was decent interest the first year. There were some big name riders as well. And, you know, the, the bikes slide a bit. They're, they're not bad to watch. But as I say, the... the you know, there's no noise. They're a bit slower than Moto3. You know, there's nothing different now. And I think it needs to take that next step. It'll come. I mean, I think my negativity really is is over the environmental um, comments made, I think, with, with battery technology being still a bit behind. It's interesting that Gary Eckerold, son of Yoni Eckerold, the 350 world champion going back in the day, uh, Gary Eckerold works for Williams on the electric side of things. And Gary is very pro. Um, regarding this because he can probably see the future better than I can or we can if I might drag you two into it as well but you know guys that are in it believe in it and that gives me hope that we will get to where we need to be which is lighter batteries that will last longer in the circumstances I mean as a racing spectacle at the minute actually racing's been all right but you wouldn't want what you wouldn't want one of the bloody things to fall on you because they weigh a ton when they fall on their side they go down and they don't flip because they're so heavy, they just dig a great furrow in the ground. And when they catch fire, I have been witness to two of these things going up. And it is literally China syndrome stuff. 
you know, it's going to burn to the core of the earth. That you know, the the way that they have to deal with with an accident, a like in Formula E, like you're talking about your car racing stuff, mm-hmm. they can't touch the things. They've all got bloody great big rubber gloves on. Can't go near it unless it's got a green light on it. Same thing with a bike. But when it's in the middle of a gravel trap and nobody can pick it up and it's on fire, and because <clears throat> those kind of battery fires self-ignite and self-feed, so you can't put it out with water. It doesn't work that way. So what they have to do is they have to drive up to it with, with looks like a little um, trailer, hook up a, a wire to it, cover it up with a big blanket, obviously a, a, a fireproof blanket, cover it up, and then drag it back into this trailer, shut the door and seal it off. So it's got no oxygen in there. It's the only way they can deal with it. We haven't had one in a gravel trap yet. We had one that went bang in Austria, I think, two years ago in the paddock. The batteries overheated while they were being charged. <laughs> and don't get me started on this because it's kind of slightly funny, really. Valencia, little story. Valencia, when they turned up, I remember next to the television compound was the Formula the World Cup of uh, Formula E, uh, sorry, Moto E. And it looked really spectacular, really, really good. Well laid out. And opposite the tent with this massive, great big awning thing with all of the bikes in, all the teams in, all the different colours and everything, because it's well sponsored and well looked at, were these like pump affairs that, that you pull the bike up and plug it in. It's the um, recharging facilities. But being the good old cynic that I've always been all my life, and hopefully that will never leave me, I followed the wiring for these things. So this dirty great cable that's about this size out the back of these recharging units, and if you go along behind the television compound, you come to massive, great smoke-bilching diesel generators that are feeding them with the power to charge these batteries up. You know, it's just it's just smoke and mirrors in some respects. I, I, there wasn't the power on site at a racetrack to be able to recharge these bikes. They had to bring these dirty, great big diesel generators in to be able to find enough power to, to, to mm. recharge them in time. And have you ever seen one with its clothes off? Unbelievable. It looks like a fridge that goes underneath your cabinet at home. Yeah. And by the way, your fri- we've been here before, your fridge is 600 millimetres wide. That's the maximum width you can have a race bike. So it could actually be a fridge full of batteries as far as I'm aware. We really have been there before, haven't we? It's interesting. I wanted to bring up the diesel generator thing. I, I have a feeling I think that was in the first season. I think they have improved on that since, but that's because simply the tracks didn't have the, the capabilities to do that. But that that's an argument as well that, you know, that's why we needed something like Moto E in the first place to create that change that was necessary to drive forward. You know, that okay, we have to start with diesel generators, fine. But then, you know, we, we will rapidly cr- try and beat the technology to then not have diesel generators which i think they are able to do so rapid rapid charge rapid charging has come on miles in the two years mm. since i was talking about that that was at valencia the first time we ever saw them yeah. at the end of the year um so we're going back a fair bit with that and granted battery technology has moved on so unbelievably quickly over the last few years i don't doubt for a second we'll get to where we get to in the end um and it may become the technology that will even you know get the approval of my house well and actually what both of you mentioned that the idea of sound and just uh, we had a few comments on this as well in uh, from twitter alan clark saying the question is what will the next generation want to watch and pay for what hooked me to the sport was the noise of a 500 cc engine going under dunlop bridge at donnington those days though are coming to an end it's like everything else isn't it 
I mean, politics, what you can say, what you can do, the way that people treat each other, you know, the, the, everything is changing. And so it should in many, many ways. The fact that the, the, the whine of an electric bike doesn't really suit an old sod like me because I love the scream of a two-stroke, which is long gone as well. You know, it's the way it is. I mean, I love the future. I mean, I think that even though, you know, I ain't going to see as much of it as you two, perhaps, but the fact being is that the future is fantastic. You know, it's not to be... It's not to be held back by dinosaur or dinosaur thinking. Mm. And that's what I love about it. You know, the improvements in technology are always going to continue. And so they should. The fact that maybe you don't like the, you know, what doesn't suit me, the wine of a, an electric bike might turn some 10 year old on in, in another 10 years time. It is what it is. I still think that it's the racing that overarches everything. You know, if you've got great racing, you know, and uh, then I think that you you'll you'll be fine. It'll be it'll be okay. And some of the racing in motor has actually been quite good. You know, slightly frightening from where I'm at because, like I said, it's it's like an alien type thing. And and knowing how heavy they are, and having spoken to some of the riders I respect that have never spoken out of tune with it, obviously because either it's in their contract or they're they're usually descending riders that are quite grateful to get a get a job. Thank you very much, and just get those last few paydays out of the. Uh, the career of racing motorbikes so they're not going to say anything controversial because at the end of the day they're just cutting their nose off to spite their face but the fact is is that most of the people i've spoken to quietly they're barges you know they're, they're low-tech suspension i mean even again going back to the first year olin's just gave them a load of suspension units that they had on the shelf from donkey's years back they weren't ones that were current at all and they weren't serviced by olin's back then either olin's wouldn't service them they sold this package of of suspension to Energica or whatever it was, I think it was Energica that was running it all at that time. Um, and you had to sort out and a spring on them. Honestly, I could have balanced my house on the spring. It was. It was, it was so, yeah. I mean, I think all these points are are fairly accurate. It, it is so you know, there's lot. It's always going to divide opinion. And one thing I, I will just sort of um, mention as well. Uh, Pete, either of you want to come in just on the back of this as well? We mentioned it briefly. Is electric actually the future, or is it just getting us somewhere else before you know potentially MotoGP then starts to adopt it? And uh, Nigel's picked up on this, and one thing he would like to put out there is what is the future of artificial fuels? And uh, I should have probably known this already, having doing some work for Porsche myself. But Porsche are trialing uh, within their own One Make Racing series a new uh, sort of e-fuel which is a mixture of hydrogen and captured carbon dioxide and they're doing that in races this year they don't believe in the future of it's being electric personally they believe that it's actually this hydrogen sort of uh, hybrid e-fuel so could that be something we then start to see in these combustion engines and and sort of moto e kind of i don't want to say dissipate but then that sort of they trial it out and then it goes to moto gp it all comes down to politics, doesn't it, Peter? <laughs> At the end of the day, Everything it all comes does. down to who is who is who is sponsoring yeah. this. Who is who are the big movers and players in the producers of the of the power source? You know, like you know, at the moment you've got Aramco, who we we've talked about somewhat controversially, I think, with you know Saudi Arabia. They're involved in Formula One massively. They're involved now with the you know VR forty six. They're involved on trackside anyway at MotoGP. You know, it comes down to politics, but. I, I just think technology didn't peak out, didn't peak out on two strokes. We could still have two strokes being driven by the stuff you've just talked about. What was it? Carbon dioxide recapture. Yeah, it was very complicated science and stuff. Are we all going to fit a pipe to our, we're going to fit a pipe to our backsides <laughs> in the future? 
<laughs> Might be a bit more advanced than that. <laughs> or not. <laughs> you just don't know. We've got to have a, to have a herd of cows in our gardens to, to make our cars go. I'm being silly, of course, and a little bit flippant. I, I think it's entirely um, possible, but I mean, as you say, that basically there will be different solutions. You know, just as we had two strokes and four strokes, maybe electric will work great for things like scooters and e-bikes. E-bikes are really popular, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. But maybe, you know, the MotoGP tech guys at the top, they seem to be very doubtful about electric for the top performance vehicles at the moment. And so maybe that will need a, a different solution. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's no perfect power source is there i mean if if we discovered oil gas everything today and we had no history of it and someone said right make a motor make make turn that energy into movement and someone said all right i'm going to get a, a piston in a barrel i'm going to ignite it and i'm going to fire it like a like a you know a bullet in a gun okay great yep you've got the movement then what are you going to do i'm going to stop it and i'm going to send it back up to where it just came you know people would be like what are you doing but it's something that's been made to work by these geniuses that have you know, taken this concept and just refined it, refined it, refined it, and made it more efficient. And, but, but there's no perfect solution. I mean, it's, it's, it's far from 100% efficient. I think even the best combustion engines, internal combustion gen engines, are less than 50%, I think. So there's, there's loads of potential, this new technology coming in, as you say. I think that we will see a mix of, of different kinds of of alternative energy for different solutions, different things. I mean, you know, I, I like off-road motorbiking, enduro, that kind of thing. The lack of noise in that would be fantastic because so many motocross tracks are closing down, you know, you get complaints about the noise. So in that way, it'd be great. And also it's not a flat out thing, which is where electric batteries, they hate that. You know, they hate just being, you know, the big long straights they tell us in MotoGP are what really hurt the e the Moto E bikes, the capacity of them, because it's just maximum power along, say, a Magello or something, just makes that heat and and it just kills the range on them. So, you know, I think we could well end up, as you're saying, Harry, where you have a different range of solutions for different things. I don't think there'll be one winner. Mm. Well, as long as I've not got a pedal, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> Although I've said that. Triumph do a really good push bike now. That's oh, electric. Do they? Are you sponsored by them for this week's show, by any chance? <laughs> or uh... <laughs> no, this is one. I, this is one I stole out of their apparel <laughs> shop when we had the um, broadcast from Triumph. There is no paid no. Um, paid situation no. here with Triumph. No hashtag ad or hashtag spawn. Whether the the influencers are doing well, um, gentlemen. I think we will uh, leave it there for the moment as well, because I don't think you're right. There is no current easy answer easy solution but uh, we it's interesting to watch it develop isn't it and watch it uh progress and see where it can go from keith one thing harry is that uh, you know in future our computer that's in front of us and have this little pipe and all the hot air that we've got <laughs> should be able to drive our houses <laughs> oh man especially yeah, you harry you make a living from it though congratulations by the way on formula congratulations not only did i watch a formula three race which on this, you wouldn't be able to drag me with wild horses to watch a Formula 3 race. I actually watched it and listened to Harry doing his commentary for the first time ever on F3. And I know how hard it is to do a new new class. So, not a bad job, oh, me old thank mate. Thank you very so. much. That means yeah, a great well deal. And to watch Formula 3. And actually, it was quite entertaining. It might be even more entertaining than the Formula 1, I think some people are saying. But uh, if we get you to watch another one, then that... 
Yeah, I'm no. <laughs> out the window already. Well, look, Keith Ewan, Pete McLaren, thank you very much indeed. Once again, the debate will continue, I'm sure, on and off throughout the season. Let us know your thoughts uh, after hearing all of that. Have you been persuaded to join in with this electric revolution or are you absolutely convinced Moto E and electric mobility is not the future? It's something else. Get in touch in all the usual ways on the Crash Moto GP socials. Uh, we shall return with you this time next week for more Moto GP chat. Uh, but you can, of course, keep up to date with all the very latest on uh, all the very latest i should say on crash.net any questions you know what to do by now send them our way through social media uh, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast also keep sending in your championship top three predictions we're seeing them we're collating them and just before the summer break finishes we'll go through them all and see what's uh, what's leading the way in all of that and we'll come back to you on that but uh, at the end of the day we shall leave it there gents and we will see you right back here next week thanks for joining bye bye Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.